Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to this moment with many needs. We're mindful of some of them. You see all of them. But we come confessing on our Father's love relying. Jesus, every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. All must be well because all things must work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose because you are at work. You are the everlasting God. There is nothing that is too difficult for you. So with this technology, with this live stream, as your church is scattered, it is not too difficult for you, Emmanuel, to be with us to draw near to us, to hold us in your righteous right hand. So do it now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're being told these days is that we are to regard this season not as a sprint, but as a marathon. So what are we to do in this marathon season in front of us. What is going to be different? I want to make three announcements about what looks different in this new season at Bethlehem. Number one, what will we do about the Lord's Supper in this new season? In the regular rhythm of life at Bethlehem, we celebrate the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month. Today will be the first time in my tenure as a pastor where we depart from that practice. And I'm missing it right now more than I can put into words. So why? Why are we not going to celebrate the Lord's Supper again until we can physically gather again? I gave a brief answer to that question in a blog post this week. I'm trusting some of you read it, though I know not everyone did. So let me give the answer in a nutshell. The answer is that the very meaning of the Lord's Supper requires a gathered assembly, not a scattered one. 1 Corinthians 11 uses the Greek word translated, when you come together, three times in verses 17 to 20 and two times in verses 33 to 34. Because the physical gathering is an indispensable part of the grace of the Lord's Supper. The grace we receive in the Lord's Supper is the grace at work in the physical gathering. Because the physical gathering is a display, is an active embodiment of the truth that we truly are one body, one loaf. In other words, the grace of communion as a shared supper, not something that we eat separately, but as a shared supper is our shared identification together in the gospel as members of one body, partaking of one loaf. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And then Paul puts this principle into practice in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one 21 by rebuking 
the Corinthians for eating it separately and not together. We should confess, we should come to grips with the fact that in our scattered capacity right now, we simply can't do this text. So what do we do? Right now, we are in a season of forced fasting from the Lord's Supper. May it drive us to prayer, stoke the fires of our longing even more for the time we can gather together. We lament that we can't physically do this now. Technology is a blessing. The scattered church, being able to virtually gather through live stream is a great blessing, but it's never meant to be a replacement, a substitute for the real physical gathering of God's people. So we heartily affirm the truth that Emmanuel is with his scattered church and we know he will give us the grace we need until we can gather together again and celebrate together again the Lord's Supper and see together again the fact that we are one body. Second, what about the Helping Hand Fund in this new season? The reason we ask this is because on Communion Sundays, we do a second offering, what we call a retiring offering, as people are leaving, and they give to the Helping Hand Fund, which is designed to help those in times of need. So what do we do if we're not celebrating communion? The Helping Hand Fund is currently working really hard in order to meet needs that are known. So if you have a need, or if you know someone who has a need, what you can do is contact the church office, leave a message, or use the COVID-19 care and help link on our website. The Helping Hand Fund currently has a very healthy balance, and so we're asking in this season, give first to the church budget and then over and above to the Helping Hand Fund. So third, what, what does the Lord's Supper look like in this season? What does the Helping Hand Fund look like in this season? Third, what will preaching look like in this new season? We've been in a series called 2020 Vision. In the month of February, we looked at what leaders do, their job description. The month of March, we looked at what the congregation does, its job description. Let me try to fast forward two weeks and then we'll work our way back. In two weeks, after Easter, we're starting in this season a new series as Pastor Dave Zuliger, Stephen Lee, and I are going to rotate each week preaching our way through 1 Peter. 1 Peter is the true grace of God, and we are to stand on it in time of trial. So we see this as so timely and so relevant, and we're so excited to work through 1 Peter together with you. We need strong Scripture medicine for this unique season of trial, and we believe God's grace will meet us in 1 Peter. So that's after Easter. Next weekend, it's going to be Easter. We're going to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. And so even though we're not going to be able to gather, even though we're not going to be able to celebrate that together physically, the Lord is still risen. So we're still going to celebrate. I'm going to be preaching from Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. 
You've already heard in the announcements, we have a Monday, Thursday, Good Friday service, Thursday at 7.45 p.m. And this week, we're looking at the triumphal entry. You know the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. They're putting their palm branches on the ground, waving them, some of them saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What we're going to do is we're going to look at one scene in that story that sometimes gets passed over, but I think is incredibly important. So in this one scene, Matthew 21 verses 14 to 17, we see three movements. We see Jesus heals, then we see people respond, and then we see Jesus rebuke. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through those movements and see what is the point of this scene in the story of the triumphal entry. So look with me first at verse 14 where we see Jesus heals. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So just answer three questions in this verse. First, what does Jesus do? You see it at the very end of the verse. He heals. Second question, where does he do this? Go back one step, in the temple. So he heals in the temple, but who does he heal? If you go back a little bit more, it says the blind and the lame. So Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple. That's what's happening here. But the question we need to really answer is, what's the point? Why tell us this? Here's the crucial question. What detail here is this playing in the story? It could be that this is necessary because the next verse talks about they see the wonderful things that Jesus is doing, and now this verse is simply telling us the wonderful things he's doing is he's healing the blind and the lame in the temple. But that would be missing the main thing that's happening here. If you look at what's happening, it's that Jesus healing the blind and the lame is proof that he is great David's greater son, the Messiah. It is showing a sign that he is the Messiah. Okay, how do you see that? Let's go back to the clues that Matthew gives us. What Matthew normally does when he summarizes Jesus' healing is he tells us that Jesus healed every sickness and disease of the people, or he tells us that he healed all the sick. But you see, this is not a generic account, healing all the sick, every disease. It's very specific. It matters that it's only the blind and the lame and it matters that it's in the temple. What if I told you that this is the only place in all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus heals in the temple? Not just that, the only place he heals in Jerusalem. Everywhere else, Jesus is in Galilee, and he's traveling, and he's healing people. There's only one healing in Jerusalem. Why? Jerusalem is the place 
that is the, the center of resistance and rebellion. Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. He's debating with the religious leaders. Only here does he heal. Why? The best commentary on the New Testament, many of you have it in your Bibles, is called the Old Testament. The question that we need to see here is Jerusalem. When did Jerusalem become the city of David? The answer is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Let me read it. And the king, that is David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. So before Jerusalem became the city of David, it belonged to people in the land called the Jebusites. So King David is coming against them, and now they say to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. So this originated, in other words, as trash talk, as a taunt against David. There's no way that you can come in here. Even blind and lame people could keep you out. But they were wrong. The strongest fortifications couldn't keep David out. The next verse, verse 7, says this, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. The story's not done. Now it becomes the city of David, but what about this taunt, this trash talk? David turns it around, and he has some taunting of his own. Verse 8, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft and attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Notice what he's saying. He's not saying, I hate the lame and the blind. He's saying the Jebusites who said even the blind and lame could keep me out, they couldn't. So they're the blind and the lame that could not keep me out. David's saying he hates the Jebusites and they're taunting of him. But a very tragic saying began to circulate from this. Therefore, it is said, verse 8, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. You see what's happening. The blind and the lame, the saying circulates, they can't go into the house of God in the city of David. And David is saying that circulating from him. And here, great David's greater son is in the temple, in his house. He's cleansing the temple, doing all this, and he's saying, I can let whoever I want into my house, and I don't just let them in as blind and as lame. I heal them so that they're no longer blind and lame. I am welcoming in the weak into my house, and they are tasting my strength. I am changing their lives. He is the Messiah. Now, how did the people respond to this sign that he is great David's greater son? You see in verses 15 and 16, next movement, the people respond. 
Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? So how do the people respond? Two different ways. The children praise and the leaders rage. The children praise because they see that he is the Messiah, the son of David, and so they say so. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. So what these children are seeing coming from their mouth, the Messiah is coming to save us. This is the Messiah. Save us. Yes, save us, son of David. When the leaders see Jesus heal, and when they hear the children praise, they blow their tops. They're indignant. With rage, they ask a question hurled at Jesus like a rebuke. Do you hear what these are saying? The force of this question is this. Do you hear these, these poor, deluded, impressionable children? You're clearly misleading people who don't have enough sense to know any better. Make them stop. Tell the truth. Set the record straight. Make them stop. And Jesus responds to this rebuke by setting the record straight in a way they did not expect. See, in verse 17 now, Jesus rebukes. And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out the city to Bethany and lodged there. I love the end of this story. Verse 17, after leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. What's it saying? This leaving, that's all he said. This leaving is like the ancient equivalent of a mic drop. He left. Didn't have to say anymore. Why? I hope you can see the scathing note of sarcasm here. He's saying to professionally trained Bible experts, PhDs in the Bible, have you not ever read the Bible? It'd be like saying to a heart surgeon, hey, I I read about this thing called a heart attack. Ever heard of it? It's like saying to a, a math professor, PhD in math, hey, I heard about this thing called the square root. You know anything about that? Ever heard about it? Jesus is saying to these experts in the Bible, I wonder if you've ever read something in the Bible. Maybe it's new to you. Sure seems like it is. Do you understand, those of you who say you know the Bible, that Psalm 8 is happening right in front of your face? Ever read it? You know what it's saying? I hope you can feel the punchline. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth 
of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Why is this a mic drop? Why does he not need to say anything else but that? Here's why. Psalm 8 begins and ends the same way the conclusion of all creation is that God has the greatest name. God alone is worthy of worship. And then when God can call anyone to testify, to the stand, anything in all creation can testify, be a character witness of his great name, of his great fame, his great character. Who's he going to call of all creation to the witness stand to testify? Surprisingly, he calls babies, infants, the weak in verse 2. And then in verses 3 and following, that small people, he lets rule his big world. It's this surprising twist that God shows his greatness by using the weak, and they call attention to his strength. What's happening here is that God's greatness is seen best against the backdrop of human weakness. That's why verse 2 is here. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So put the pieces now in place. If these children praising in the temple are the out of the mouth of babies and infants to still the enemy and the avenger, that means these religious leaders The leaders of the people of God are the enemies of the people of God. And what is it that stills them, that silences them? It's the praise of the children. Let's unpack just this punch behind what's happening here. First, don't take this term, babies and infants, and restrict it too narrowly. The prophet Jeremiah uses the same word translated babies for children playing in the streets. Jeremiah 6, 11, 9, 21. The word for infants literally refers to nursing children, but women in the ancient world sometimes nursed up to two or three years old. So we could be talking about grade school children, about toddlers, about kids, maybe just learning to speak, using the power of that speech for something here called praise. The Greek translation of the Old Testament already interpreted the strength coming out of their mouth as praise. They're punching above their weight. Their praise is packing a punch. They can draw the right conclusion and put the big shots to shame. So now we come back to our passage. Jesus is saying, The best example of Psalm 8 is happening right now. Do you see it happening right before your faces? Jesus didn't need to rebuke them. Why? The children already did. Jesus didn't need to shame them. Why? The children already did. It's like 
what happens in the story of David and Goliath where the, the giant Goliath is taunting the armies of the living God. And then little David comes along. This is what's happening here. The enemies of the people of God are the leaders of the people of God, like Goliath, the big shots, coming in, and they're not just taunting the armies of the living God, they're taunting the living God. And the children come up to these big shots, these giants, and they say, don't you know who that is? What's happening in Psalm 8 that makes it so perfect is it's about the praise of God. Jesus here in Psalm 8 is now receiving the worship of these children as God, saying that he does have the greatest name. He is alone worthy of worship. The children see it and sing it, and Jesus says, don't need to do nothing else. You've already been silenced by the small. The main point is that Jesus is the God of Psalm 8, who has the greatest name and is alone worthy of the highest praise. The children see it and sing it. The religious leaders who claim to see the most are the most blind. Those who think they have the loudest voice really are silenced by those just getting their voice. The praise has silenced them. So here is the point then in application. As we face this new unprecedented time right in front of us, and you ask the question, what would God have me do? What am I supposed to do in this confusing, chaotic time? I really want to ask the question, what does the Lord ask of you? I'm really asking what do you think? What comes to mind? I hope that what comes to mind is not just that here I should be sowing mass or I should be sending out notes or I should be calling or I should be giving or I should be whatever. Don't underestimate the power of praise. When you look at all the things that you can't do during this time of pandemic, don't miss the fact that you can still do the main thing that you're made for, worship. It hasn't changed. We're not praising circumstances. We're praising the one who does not change and circumstances have not changed that. This virus cannot keep us from doing the main thing we were made for, which is to worship God. And when I say worship, I don't only mean what happens in the context of a worship service. Like right now, I hope that you're not just watching but that you're worshiping. That as God says, how about you? In this time of distancing, in this time when things are canceled, in this time when you stress the things that you can't do, are you doing the main thing you were made for? Are you worshiping even now? Do you understand that in this season, 
when so many people are giving vent to their complaints and their fears and their doubts that those who praise are going to stick out like a wonderfully sore thumb. And when hope is rare, when there's a shortage of hope and people see it and they're going to ask, where did you get that? That's where you're ready to give a reason for your hope. God has prepared praise in this pandemic. He's prepared it from you to show your trust, to highlight the fact that this has not changed God's mighty right hand. It's not changed any of God's character, any of God's attributes, any of God's power, any of God's wisdom. It's all still there, and he's still worthy to be trusted and praised. Now, how can children do this? the littlest among us can punch above their weight. How do they do it? I'm not just talking about singing. I'm not just talking about during this live stream, kids, here's your chance. I'm thinking about moments like this. You understand, right, kids, that all of life is meant to be worship, not just times where we're singing. I'm, I'm so serious about this that I even started Pastor Jason's Kids Corner for kids because I want you to be involved in this praise. Do the main thing that you're made for. Here's what I have in mind for you right now. If all of life is meant to be worship, I'm thinking of moments that I've experienced when it just feels like a mess, when it feels like there's chaos and confusion and darkness. Have you ever experienced a time when a little child speaks up and says something like, I'm just so thankful that Jesus doesn't change. And all the adults in the room that have had their anxiety just being ratcheted up, suddenly our hearts melt because we're reminded of the main thing, the one true constant that never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This changing circumstance has not changed the fact that our Savior is the same forever. These changing circumstances do not mean that our hope needs to shift away from Jesus. It needs to be centered there more than ever. Everyone can do this, including children. When praise arises from childlike faith, it pierces the darkness. Our hearts are melted with the reminder of what can't change, of what we can't lose, of what is always gloriously the same, we can still do the main thing that we were made for. When everyone else points to counterfeit hopes, that should have a warning sign, thin ice, don't stand there. Praise rises and it says, God is for us, and God is in us, and God is not done with us. And we say things like, grace has brought me safe thus far, 
and grace will lead me home. That's the power of praise. That's what weak people can do in their weakness is come and declare the greatness and strength of God and say, that's my hope. That's where I'm resting. Perhaps today, the best way to hold on is to cry out, hold me, Jesus, and praise him that he's promised to not let you go. How do you know? How do you know he won't let you go? You know that he's strong enough. How do you know that he's actually willing? Psalm 8 looks at the magnitude of the night sky as an example of God's greatness. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The thing that the psalmist does is he looks up at the magnitude of the night sky and a hundred thousand stars like diamonds sparkling against a dark velvet backdrop and he feels so small in the light of something so big and yet the psalmist can be amazed but we should be much more amazed because we know so much more. The psalmist doesn't expound upon solar systems and galaxies. A solar system is the sun, that is a star, and everything bound to it by gravity, like our eight planets and moons, asteroids, comets, interplanetary dust, whatever that is. Our galaxy is the Milky Way galaxy. Galaxy is a large system of stars held together by mutual gravitation, isolated from other systems by vast distance. And when you just stop and think about our solar system, it may seem large, but it is actually very small compared to our galaxy. Our solar system is in the Milky Way galaxy. A galaxy has at least 200 to 400 billion suns, billion stars. Put this into perspective. Scale this, if you will. If our Milky Way galaxy were the size of the continent of North America, how big would our solar system be? Our sun, our planets, it would be the size of a coffee cup. What does that make us? We're like not even an ant in the coffee cup, not even a leg of an ant. We're like, sorry, what a gross image for those of you who are drinking coffee. You get my point though, right? We are so, we are microscopic specks. And what the psalmist is so amazed by we're even more amazed by when we understand there are over 170 billion galaxies with 200 to 400 billion stars in them and you multiply that and you look up and you say, how big is this universe? And yet, the psalmist says, that's what your fingers did. Oh, so easy for God. 
It's like he didn't even have to use his wrist. Talk about not lifting a finger to help. Like, this is the work of just his fingers. What the psalmist is most amazed by is not how big the universe is or how small he is, but how great God's care is. What is man? Who am I that you would even care about someone so small? And then it gets really great. When you think about what God can do with just a finger curl creating the universe, you start to wonder, what could God do like with a bicep curl, like with, with more strength, and then let your mind run wild? What could God do, not just with his fingers or with some of his muscles, what would take God everything, all of God? What could all of God do? This season of Good Friday and Easter, we know the answer. It wasn't just the fingers of Jesus. When he became incarnate, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, it's not just the work of his fingers, but of his head for the crown of thorns, for his side, for the spear, for his back, and the flogging, for the nails, for his hands and his wrists. What could mean more than just the work of his fingers? What would be all of him? Your salvation. It took all of God to pay all the price for your sins, and he did it. That's what we're celebrating, he did it, he came. And so, if you are not a Christian, right now, listening in, what I need you to see is that this is not just the greatest actual display of love ever, but the greatest possible display of love ever. What does it take to forgive all of your sins? All of God. And if right now, in this moment, you're saying, I don't need that, I don't want that, on the day of judgment, when you have to pay for all of your sins forever, it will be unanswerable when God says, I made a way. I paid it all. And you said you didn't want it or need it? Oh, I'm praying your eyes would be opened now to see that he paid the price for all of your sins by giving all of himself and that you will run to him now, embrace him, receive all that he has for you, which is all of him. And he will let you into his house forever. And if you're a Christian, and if you have seen God give all to save you, Romans 8, 32, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not now with him freely give us all things? Whatever you see right now in your weakness and you say, I feel deficit, I feel like I don't have enough, I'm not wise enough, I'm not strong enough, I don't feel like I can endure enough, 
What can the weak do? They can trust in a strong God who will hold them, who will carry them. Once he's paid the ultimate price, given everything, when you were an enemy, don't you think now that he will do the easy thing and give you whatever you need so that you can say, here I come, I confess. Here is my heart. I don't feel strong enough. I don't feel like I can make it, but I believe that you can carry me through. And when I don't feel like I can stand, all I need to do is fall on you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. You want to do the main thing for which you're made? Worshipfully bring your inability to his all mighty ability and rest. Let's pray. Father, now we confess this needs to be our rest. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not big enough. We can't endure enough. But what we can do in our weakness is come to the one who is strong enough, big enough, wise enough, loving enough. God, help us to rest now. Help us to sing directly and for our praise to tell the story of your greatness and our trust. In Jesus' name, amen.